Well, we're in the midst of this series of messages, which we're concluding today on the Lord's Prayer. And it all is shaped around the fact that Jesus' leadership team, his disciples, had been watching him. They saw the vibrant relationship they had that he had with God the Father, and they wanted that kind of relationship with him. Something that I think deep inside us, each one of us yearns for. And they could see that it was significantly predicated on his prayer relationship with the Father. And so one day they said to him, would you teach us to pray? And he gave us what we commonly call now the Lord's Prayer. And we've been walking through that together. And we come to the last section of the prayer, which talks about yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we've been encouraging you to pray this prayer every day, not simply to recite it, which is a wonderful thing to do, but to say, what are the parts of it that I need to take and incorporate into my overall prayer life? What is the pattern that Jesus has laid down for me and for us? And as we do that, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Kind Father, we bow in your presence. And we are so overwhelmingly grateful that you who are holy, we were singing about that earlier in the service, you who are absolutely pure, didn't walk away from us when we walked away from you. Instead, you instituted and promised the plan of restoration available only through Jesus. And we are so grateful that because of your grace, our sins can be forgiven. We read from Psalm 103 earlier, Lord, that talks about you who um, are angry with our sin, and yet because of your grace, you set it aside and you forgive it and you cleanse it. Thank you for that. Thank you that you are a God that cares for us and loves us. And we pray now as we look into your word that you would just uh, expand it in our minds and in our hearts. And not simply in an informational way, but in a way that impacts how we do life. And so we invite you to speak to us in this way. And to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He was the most powerful man in the world. Devoted to building his kingdom. It was all about his power. It was all about his personal glory. He lived in Rome, but the world that he oversaw began in England, came all the way down south through Europe to the northern parts of Africa, and east all the way to Asia. And at that time in history, the entirely known world. He ruled over it all. And all of the peoples of those nations were expected to bow down to him. His army was so strong that it was virtually uncontested and unchallenged. In fact, he was able to establish what historians now would call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that was enforced on all of these subjugated people. And so there was very little war and stuff of that nature because of the strength of his army. And so Caesar Augustus was devoted to extending 
his own personal glory. And people literally worshiped him and bowed down to him. And everywhere he would look at the map and he would say, my kingdom, my power, my glory. And from a human perspective, he was basically right. Another ancient historian tells us that one day Caesar had an idea. And he wrote it like this, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And one day he decides, I want everyone to know just how large my kingdom really is. I want more money collected to extend my reach, to extend my power, to reflect my glory. And he lifts his finger and he says a word, and the world, word rather, and the world scrambles to obey. Tom Wright, in writing about this, writes, this man, this king, this absolute monarch, lifts his finger in Rome, and 3,500 kilometers away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertakes a hazardous journey, all at the whim of the king. Only notice the result. A child is born in an obscure little town that Caesar has never heard of, that just happens to be mentioned in an ancient hidden prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, which says, out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Caesar lifts a finger. He says a word. And a little baby named Jesus is born in the backwater town of Bethlehem. Let me ask you, what king is really at work here. What king is really at work here? Because this is really a story of two cities, and Rome is one of them, and that's a certain kind of kingdom. It's all about power. It's all about glory. And from a human perspective, it's quite impressive. That kind of kingdom is a kingdom that we see all around us today. We see people engaged in this mad scramble to acquire that kind of kingdom, that kind of power, that kind of glory. We see it all down through history. And the other city or little community is Bethlehem, and that's a very different kind of kingdom. The money, the titles, the power, the palaces, all of those things are in Rome. And I've been privileged to be to Rome. I've been to Bethlehem. And even today, Bethlehem is this kind of little drink water town, economically depressed. Uh, I just looked this week, 25% unemployment. When I was there, uh, even higher percentage of unemployment than that. Large groups of men just sitting around, smoking on the street corner in little plastic chairs with nothing to do all day. But the angels weren't singing in Rome. They were singing in Bethlehem. And Caesar thought his throne was as secure as a throne can be. And from a human perspective, he's quite right. But actually, Caesar had no idea. And this is kind of part of the, the sense of humor of God, I think. He didn't know that the real kingdom was actually lying in a manger 
in Bethlehem. And the reality is, is every one of us has a kingdom problem. We don't have the kind of stretch that Caesar did, but in our own mind, we tend to think, my kingdom, my power, my glory. So let me read some excerpts from a great commentary on this kind of thinking. It's a book on political science theory written by a guy named Dr. Seuss. And the book is called Yertle the Turtle. Listen to what Dr. Seuss writes. It's a story about a little pond of turtles who are ruled or so thinks by a king named a turtle, a king turtle named Yertle. And one day, Yertle the turtle king decides his kingdom needs extending. I'm the king of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. So he began to stack turtles, one on top of each other, to raise his throne. The king lifted his finger, and a whole pond of turtles attempted and scrambled to obey. Several hundred, in fact. They all existed for his sake, his kingdom, his power, his glory, and he could see for miles. I am Yertle the turtle, O marvelous me, for I am the ruler of all that I see. And he thought his throne was as secure as a throne could be, but in the end, his throne turned out to be a turtle tower of Babel. Because at the bottom of the pile, a plain little turtle had a problem. He burped. And that burp shook the throne of the king. And today that great yertle, the marvelous he, is king of the mud. And that's all he can see. You know, the Bible says, for the first shall be last. And everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's actually the way the real kingdom works. And this is why Jesus, in the middle of his teaching on prayer, ends with this phrasing, your kingdom, your power, God, your glory. And you'll notice in some of the translations that this part of the prayer is a footnote in the most, and it's not included in the most ancient manuscripts, You want to come and talk to me about that later, you can. It's a complicated thing. But I assume these words and these ideas were used because this is entirely consistent with Scripture's comments about kingdom and kingdom problems we all have, in which we think to ourselves, I want to build my own little kingdom. I want to make my family, my work, my dream, my goals into my own little kingdom under my control, And I want it to be all about my agenda. And some of us are very bold and obvious about this kind of thinking. Some of us are quite subtle about how we approach this. But one day, some turtle somewhere is going to burp, and I will learn the truth about my own personal kingdom, about who ultimately is in control. About who it is that lifts a finger and says a word. And friends, they don't live in Rome. He or she does not live in Washington or Peking or Moscow or Ottawa 
or work on Wall Street or produce things in Hollywood, contrary to popular opinion. There is a kingdom at work, and it's not particularly visible, and and from a human perspective, it's not even that impressive at times. And sometimes we even wonder if we can trust it, but of course we can. So Jesus, in his teaching to us on how to pray, says, I want you to infuse into your prayer life, and this is very important, the idea of your kingdom, not mine. Your kingdom, God. Your kingdom, God, not my kingdom. And in those words, if we pray them sincerely, we are humbled and surrendered. Are we, is there a problem with the mic? Okay. Where's another mic I can use? Thanks. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Okay. You know, it happens sometimes. He's going to turn it on here. Using this cordless. We like to think that it's our kingdom, but Jesus says it's very important that we infuse into our thinking and into our prayer life your kingdom, not my kingdom. Your kingdom, not my kingdom. And when we pray that kind of idea, those kinds of concepts with sincerity, we are humbled and we are surrendered. And we were reminded that Jesus is preaching and teaching us about prayer. And he really begins this prayer, which we did in week number two of this series with your will be done in my life. Help me discover in my prayer life as I process it, your will be done in my life, not mine. And God, I want to give up the emptiness of trying to construct a life around the pursuit of my agenda. And that's very tough for us to do. God, use me. Help me discover your will for my life. And then I will give to that end. I will serve to that end. I will live to that end. Because we forget this very important concept. And we try to get back with some frequency into our own personal kingdom building agenda. This is one of the reasons I believe Jesus bookends the prayer with this concept. He says at the beginning of it and at the end, your kingdom, God, not mine. Use me, I'll serve, I'll give, I'll live in light of that. And so the question might need to be asked in our life, do we need to surrender to this kind of thinking ourselves? What have we been trying to build up? Have we been trying to construct our own personal little throne, our own little kingdom? which looks like www.scottinc.org. And God is saying it's time to say, it's time to pray and incorporate this kind of thinking into our life. God, it's your kingdom, not my kingdom. It's your power, not my power. It's your glory, not my glory. 
So let me give you an example of this at work in practical terms, where we see God's glory, God's power, God's dominion at work. Turn with me in your Bibles or in your uh, devices to Acts chapter 12. And it's the fifth book in the New Testament after we see the four historical biographies of the life of Jesus. We come to the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church uh, exploding across the continents. Acts chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading right there in verse 1. And it's all about a story of two cities and two kings. And one is King Herod. This is a different King Herod than the Herod that tried to murder Jesus when he was a baby, when he was an infant. And we begin reading in verse 1. It was about this time that Herod, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute him them rather he had James the brother of John so that's actually Jesus half-brother put to the sword this is persecution at work and when he saw that this pleased the Jews he proceeded to seize Peter also this happened during the feast of the unleavened bread after arresting him he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And see, Herod um, sees that putting James to the sword pleased them, so he grabs up Peter, and he has him guarded by 16 guards. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. You know, God, get him out, help him, save him from this, all those kinds of things. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. But the angel told him, the angel told him to do this. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing and what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. And so Peter's sound asleep, the angel wakes him up. And even though Peter has been a witness to the resurrection, he still doesn't see God's power at work here. But pretty quickly, we're going to discover he realizes what's going on. Verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. That's the guy that wrote the book of Mark, one of the historical biographies of the life of Jesus, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When, he, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She, I'm assuming she was praying for his release as well, and she is going, wow, God has got release for this guy. And she's so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, 
And when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. And so he goes to the house where he knows they're having this community prayer meeting for him. Rhoda is so excited that she doesn't even think to open the door for him and she just runs and tells everybody that Peter's at the door. And there's a couple of reasons why we know this is true. They include these little facts that make them look kind of goofy, which is not the typical pattern when you're trying to establish things. And so she kind of goofs up. She hears his voice out there. She's so excited she forgets to even let him in and just runs away and tells the people about it. Secondly, they think to themselves, she must be out of her mind. And they don't really believe God has answered prayer. And so they're praying apparently earnestly for this to happen. And when God actually does it, they don't believe that he's done it. And it paints them in a very unflattering light. In fact, it says in verse 16 that they were astonished when they saw him. And so these are some of the reasons we know this stuff is to be true, is because they're not trying to make themselves, as they're writing the after-action reports of this, they're not trying to make themselves look good. They're not trying to say things like, our prayers save the day. I'm going to go and write a book about how to pray now. In fact, it just tells the truth, and it's sort of an embarrassing truth that I think many of us, including myself, often share, where I try to restrict God and his activity to my rather minute understanding of his power and his glory. And I carry burdens on my own, and I think one of the one of the encouragements of this kind of preaching and this kind of praying is to say, how can I cut the lag time between when I am challenged and when I come to God and ask for his glory and his power to be on display? Because when I go to God, I get strength. And sometimes we go and sometimes there are dramatic answers like this. Sometimes not. Sometimes we hear the word no. But I do get strength, I do get wisdom, I do get creativity, I do get comfort. And I always believe that I get a good answer, even when it's a tough answer to swallow, at least initially. Many of you know that the last 18 months has been particularly difficult for our family. One of the reasons for that difficulty revolves around my father-in-law, who 18 and a half months ago was living in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And uh, love him, but he's always been a strong-willed individual. And 18 months ago, and even prior to that, we began to see evidences of vascular dementia, dementia coming forth in his life. But he could function... Um, he was doing well in life, things were going okay, more and more forgetful, but he was doing okay, and the medical people were checking on him. We had someone from our family, especially from Debbie's family, who'd work in that area all through their career and knew 
what to look for. And so they were checking on him every week or two. And we did everything that we could to help him that he would let us do. This went on for seven or eight months. But all along we were praying, God, what do we do? We've done what we can do, but our hands are tied to help anymore. And then you'll recall the middle of March, almost a year ago now, on a Wednesday, we were scheduled that Sunday, Debbie and I, to leave for some weeks overseas on a missions trip to go and serve there and to learn there as well. And on Wednesday night, I was watching the news and they shut down all the flights from Europe, you remember. And I remember turning to, at that point we were planning to go, but I remember turning to Debbie and I said, I think everything just changed. And so the next morning we called and we canceled this trip. We were supposed to be leaving on Sunday, along with who knows how many people around the world. The next morning, we got a phone call from BC. And in the previous week or so, my father-in-law had taken a dramatic turn for the worse. And it was clear that we needed to go and get him. It was also equally clear that it would not be possible for him to live with us long term, but there's nowhere for him to go here in Alberta, even though he had lived here for a good portion of his life. And so we were praying. It's Friday morning, and we thought, you know what? Let's pick up the phone and call this one place. They told us there was nothing available to help us at this point. They were really gracious people, very grateful, gracious people, but there was nothing they could do. And we thought, we're going to pray, and then we're going to try and call. And we called, and they said, oh, this is very interesting. Um, Earlier in this week, something happened, and the answer up until all this point had been no, 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 no. But something happened earlier this week, and now the answer is yes. and He can come in here in two weeks' time. And so Sunday morning, the plan had been to preach in the morning services and then get on a plane and fly overseas. But instead, we preached Sunday morning, got in the car, and drove to Abbotsford and picked him up and brought him back to live with us for the next while. And it wasn't easy. It still isn't. It was complicated, it still is. It was difficult, it still is. God's answers are not always convenient, but they're always good. And my experience is his timing is exquisite. Perfect. I still have so much to learn about this as we pray together. Can I invite all of us to do this, to say, God, would you show me your kingdom, your power as life unfolds, your glory in the areas of my life where it's most needed? I said earlier in this series that sometimes a prayer is as short as the word help. I think it's also extremely wise to develop the healthy habit of praying at a set time every day. Just say, this is going to be my time when I pray during this day. And then as the day unfolds, 
whatever that time is for you, that healthy habit. But as the day unfolds, to just pray at this time and that time. That's one of the reasons the scripture says to pray without ceasing. And so we, we, we develop this healthy prayer rhythm. It's part of maturing in faith. Where I learn that prayer is much more than simply bringing a shopping list of things for God to do. One of the ways we find that we're maturing in our walk with God is that our prayer time evolves to be much more than simply a shopping list of things. Asking God, would you do this? Would you do this? Would you do this? And we begin to incorporate in a very healthy way these different elements of what Jesus has taught us to pray, to honor his name, to exalt his name for who he is and what he's done, to explore and step into what his will is for us, to be asking for the things absolutely that we need, but also as we looked in that message, not only asking for what we need, but being deeply grateful and very specifically grateful for the things that he's done. To pray about forgiveness of our own personal sins, which we're often deeply reluctant to do, to humble ourselves and admit our sin, and then to prayerfully process the forgiving of others who have sinned against us. To stand against temptation, it says in verse 13 of the prayer. And then to pray in Jesus' name, warfare-type prayers. Taking authority over the evil one. That as a believer in Christ, as one who has relationship with Christ, not in our own strength we have no authority, but in the name of Christ we have authority to pray warfare prayers against the evil one to bow our knees, to confess, and to say, not will my will be done, Lord, but your kingdom, God. Your power, God. Your glory, God. Amen.